Welcome to The Well Podcast, where we post the audio messages for our Sunday sermons. For more information about us and how to get further connected, feel free to visit our website at thewellaustin.com. Hello, my name is Brittany Leva. I'm a Covenant community member here at The Well, and with my husband, I co-lead the Easton Park CG. Thank you. Definitely, if you are looking for a CG, come by our CG anytime. You will always be welcome. Today, I get to read our scripture, and we are going to be reading from Titus 2, starting at verse 9 through 3-2. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome. Hey, disciples of Jesus, how are we? Good, good. It's good to be here with you all this week. Hey, I uh, want to say one thing real quick before we get started. Uh, thank you for those of you who kind of endured with us the past couple of weeks uh, as the AC has been out. It has not always been as nice outside as it is today, so it has been hot in here. Uh, and so thank you uh, genuinely and for coming back as well. Uh, while we really do love Eastside, one surefire way to make sure we have more control of the AC is to have our own space. So if you know Mr. or Mrs. Moneybags... In Austin, all right, maybe that sweat needed to speed some of y'all up a little bit, all right? Uh, I'm hoping that we are here for a long time, but if you want to bless the saints of God, we'll take that blessing, okay? We'll even get a name, like a plaque with your name on it, and we'll put it right next to the AC unit in our new building, okay? Um, No, thank you for real. One of the things that I was realizing last week was actually my own bitterness driving to church, uh, hearing that it was off again. And as I was driving, I feel like the Spirit really convicted me of, I mean, there are people that are gathering this morning uh, that are facing the threat of their life just to be able to gather. Like they're literally risking being killed because of how valuable they see the gathering of the saints. And I was bitter about the heat, right? And so I just want to encourage you, like, man, if your heart was like mine, I would encourage you, like, what are we doing here? Why is it valuable? Why does it matter? Why are people willing to literally die to be able to gather with the saints of God? Something sacred can happen when we allow ourselves to be met by God. And so I pray we'd be met by him even this morning. Amen. All right. Hey, we're continuing our series on discipleship. So last week, Yusuf continued us thinking about what many of us would traditionally call discipleship. That is the mature pouring into the younger, which is awesome and needed. I know that so many of us have been benefactors of that type of discipleship. 
Uh, to quickly recap though, as we think about discipleship, it isn't just the personal aspect of discipleship that matters. In fact, you've seen this graph behind me every single week because we think it really matters. It is the corporate that matters as well. And as this week, we look at a very interesting aspect of this idea of corporate discipleship. And so one-on-one in a coffee shop, uh, I'm still waiting for my merit gift card, by the way. Uh, if that's all that discipleship is, then we'll miss how the scriptures are wanting us to corporately make disciples of the world around us, even if we are in lower or in lesser positions. And so last week, Yusuf talked about the spiritually mature blessing or pouring into or loving or discipling the younger. But what if we're the younger one? What do we do then? Or even more, what if we're in a position that has absolutely no authority? Can you and I still make disciples? Paul would not only tell us yes, Paul would say that we're able to make just as much impact as those with maturity or authority. And so if you do not think that you have much to give, let me rebuke that lie with the scriptures this morning in the name of Jesus, all right? As we dive into this text, it can be difficult to understand how this text relates to our idea of discipleship. I mean, it starts off with the word bond servants, which is a very polite word of really the real word, which is the word slaves. It's like, dang, okay? Uh, I was afraid that the scripture readers today would be like slaves and then accidentally look at me. It's like, you can catch these holy hands. I'm just kidding, right? It can be hard to see like, yo, how does this relate with discipleship at all? That's because I believe that you and I don't see discipleship correctly. Week to week in a coffee shop, this passage is very far from that reality. It would not correlate with this at all. However, if discipleship is more multifaceted than this, if it is helping others to love, follow, and serve Jesus, then even how we treat others and how we act before others in various situations and scenarios can be discipleship opportunities and a way that we disciple other people around us in our lives. We can help other people love, follow, and serve Jesus, even if we are in lowly positions. And even if those people are not followers of Jesus, we can still make disciples of them anyway. That's the context for today. And so what we're going to be tackling here is the idea that our corporate behaviors make impacts on private individuals. All right, that's what we're doing today. Our corporate behaviors, they make impacts on private individuals. As we serve others around us, even from a position of humility or of lower status, as we model Christ, it can genuinely impact those above us. Hence the title for today, Sacrificial Service. How we live our lives sacrificially can make disciples of those around us. Now, last week, Yusuf bemoaned to me in the office that I gave him a really hard passage, but this mug starts off, slaves be submissive in everything. All right, it's like, dang. So quickly, let me show you the importance that we can bridge our context as to what Paul is doing to see how this ties in with the idea of discipleship. Firstly, that context of slavery is completely different than our cruel and wicked version of chattel slavery, which is what normally comes into our minds when we think about this aspect of slavery. Uh, these slaves in this context often chose to go into slavery as a means of provision for themselves and their families. That said though, I don't wanna act like it's just a lower tier type of job and therefore slavery is okay. It is not. 
Slaves were still considered second-class citizens in that culture, which second-class does not belong to the kingdom of God or the Imago Dei within an individual. Everybody is valuable and important in the kingdom of God, and God sees each of us not in a class or ranking status, but as uh, inherent bringers of the image of God to the people around us. And so even though it wasn't the same version that we have, it was still not something that will be in the kingdom, therefore it is ungodly. And so I don't wanna act like just because it wasn't as bad, it doesn't mean that that is okay. It still was not that great. So without going into great depth in that idea, let me say a couple of things here, okay? Uh, First of all, only where there was an active Christian witness did slavery end ever throughout all of human history. We would like to honor certain governments as if they did something, but most of the governments that abolished slavery were really trying to uphold the necessity of slavery until the Christians came along and said, this is not a godly thing. And only where people decided to submit to the scriptures and the kingdom of God did slavery get abolished ever throughout all of human history. There is ample evidence of this. You can go chat GPT it yourself, all right? The reason this happened, the reason slavery abolished is because the Bible sets up systems to undermine slavery and to ultimately overthrow it. And so even in texts like this, where it seems like there is a call for somebody's full submission, in actuality, it is being set up to ultimately overthrow slavery. The call for submission, family, is not the calling for submission of one's dignity or one's humanity. In this context, the focus that Paul has is on the witness to the master, which submission becomes a tool by which you can better proclaim the gospel, not a tool by which somebody can override you and make much of you for their own benefit. There's a difference. And so this is something very important. We'll get to the idea of witnessing in a second. But Paul wants people's freedom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21, he says, listen, uh, were you a bondservant? Okay, when you were called, when you got saved? Cool, listen, uh, don't really be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, then do it. Like avail yourself the opportunity. Freedom is Paul's theology, but not at a cost of a greater witness to the gospel because a greater slavery than our bodies is that of our souls to sin. If you can accomplish both freedom of the body and freedom of the soul, then let both of them be accomplished. But you also have to, in the process, be thinking about the souls of others as well. And in irony, the more you go about the gospel work of freeing souls, the more everybody around you will see the dignity of humanity because they are becoming image bearers of Christ and Christ sees the dignity in every one of you. And so as you proclaim the gospel, you begin to make disciples that recognize the inherent value of every human that exists. And guess what gets overthrown? Slavery. And so Paul says, listen, focus on the gospel as well, because if we just set up all these institutions to override the cruelty of the world, another government will come and unravel it. But if we begin to build a counter kingdom, a better kingdom, then it will ultimately overthrow the kingdoms of this world because the kingdom of darkness will always bow down to the kingdom of light. 
Focus on the kingdom of light is what Paul is saying here. That is the New Testament ethic. That is people like Martin Luther King Jr.'s ethic as well. Now, we've talked about passages like this in a great detail in the past, and we will in the future as well. And so because we're thinking about discipleship, I'm not going to go much more into it than that this morning. In fact, we're doing a Justice and Mercy series in the late winter through the book of Amos. We're shooting racial reconciliation videos that will drop around the same time. There's tons of material coming out. The only thing that I want to say this morning is that if someone ignorantly says that Christianity promoted or encouraged slavery, I want you to rest assured that wherever the gospel was planted and then watered and then grown, there was also the deepest levels in that culture of human dignity and freedom as well. And so ignore the fake news hot takes, all right? And make sure you get your facts straight, okay? Yes, some random Bible-rejecting Christians owned slaves, just like we read about a few weeks ago. Just because somebody is Jesus adjacent does not make them Jesus pure. It may have the same label, but you need to check the ingredients because a lot of those cats were not authentic. Okay, where the gospel reigns, so does freedom, which is exactly what Paul's theology is here. That's the context, okay? Now with that context, with this idea, look at what Paul says to the slaves. He says, I want you to do this so that, you see that word there? Why is Paul calling them towards the behavior that we're gonna study in a second? Is it because Paul thinks slavery is right? Is it because he doesn't care about justice? Is it because, no, he recognizes the gospel as the most important thing because once the gospel truly takes root, everything else will take root and will change as well. Therefore, in our series, a representation of the gospel is in and of itself a discipleship activity for even when people reject that gospel, they're often so convicted by our representation of the gospel that they begin to behave more in line with the laws of Christ, which brings about good for everybody around them. Even slavery in our country, most abolitionists became this because of the conduct of their slaves and the gospel. John Morant or Samuel Morris or Prince Cabu or Frederick Douglass and many others, they saw their masters be converted, turn into the biggest advocates against the wretched human practice called slavery. And guess what ended up happening? It got overturned because of the witness of the gospel. That is Paul's theology here. So Paul sees this and is saying, hey, you in lesser positions, how you act is actually going to be a witness to the gospel. And this will drastically impact your life and the lives of people around you. You can corporately disciple or corporately influence people way more than you realize. Act in line with Christ and watch how things change around you. That is Paul's understanding here. Do you see the, the undermining effort in that theology? Nobody? Let me keep preaching then. Y'all be complaining, I'll be preaching long, but you don't be saying nothing. You know what I'm saying? Listen, uh, let's bring it to today, okay? See how it lines up with our idea of discipleship. Paul tells those in vulnerable positions to mind the way that they act because how they act will clearly influence people around them. If they act in such a way where the gospel is adorned or made beautiful, then those around them will likely desire to follow Christ as well and submit their lives more fully to him. And so you may feel like you do not have a bunch to give like the bond servants in this culture, but I want you to recognize for the remainder of this morning that how you act will reflect who you ultimately serve. 
How you act will reflect who you serve. And if you are acting in line with the gospel, other people will want to serve the same savior with you. So even if you're the lowest in the totem pole on your, in your company, if you are a representation of Christ, it will impact those around you, even those above you. And over time, the kingdom will begin to be represented through you. This is true in church. This is true in families. This is true in corporate America. This is true anywhere a Christian is. Our works, our light bear evidence to the God that we serve and people will be impacted by that. What type of impact are you making family of God? Are you making disciples of those around you? Because even if they don't know Jesus, Jesus, they're reading the Bible. The Bible is called you. They're reading your lives, okay? Y'all following how I want to apply this this morning? Um, okay, great. Look at that. See, feedback. You just asked for it. They're like, yeah, we're trying to get out of church, dog, all right? So uh, listen, let me give a quick example to that. Um, let me, uh, uh, Micaiah, okay, my oldest daughter. Micaiah is 10 years old. I have four daughters, for those of you who do not know. And Micaiah uh, used to be like wild, y'all. Like we was like ready to cast some demons out of her when she was like two years old, okay? Uh, and when she came to faith, she completely changed. It was a clear evidence. I truly think that that girl loves and follows Jesus because she went from being very hostile in our family to very calm, very kind, very gracious, self-controlled, very patient. All words that I have a hard time with in the Christian faith. And so when I'm trying to discipline one of my other daughters, say Elia, my youngest, who was wild like Micaiah was, I'll be super calm, super kind, super patient. This happened on Wednesday, okay? And as I'm calm and kind and patient, she just smacks me in the eye and somehow smacks the Holy Spirit right up out of me, right? And I am no longer calm, kind, and patient, right? Micaiah, I saw her the very next day try to be calm with Elia. Elia like kicked her and she was like, no, no, Elia, it's okay. That girl is convicting to my walk, right? Even though she is in a quote unquote lower position in our family, she is discipling me without even realizing it. You can make a difference corporately. You can influence those around you despite your position, family. You do not have to be the experienced one or the mature one. If you are a representation, discipleship will come. People will love, follow, and serve Jesus because of you. Look at what Paul says in our context and how we can apply it into ours. Notice how Paul makes a structurally rhythmic pattern in his commands to the slaves. He says something positive, then two negative things, don't do this, don't do this, and then another positive thing. That's called a chiasm, A-B-B-A. That was the ancient way of drawing attention to a text. It's like our version of bold or underline or italic. And so this poetic way draws attention to the commands. So why is Paul commanding these things? What is he trying to draw our attention to? Well, there's that word again, so that. He's saying, do this so that the gospel would be adorned. There was this common adage at the time that slaves were lazy and that they were good for nothing. It was literally written all over ancient literature. And so Paul here is telling them, I want you to undermine that thought so that when unbelieving masters look at you, they're like, wait, why aren't you like your kinsmen? Why are you hardworking? Why are you not stealing? That's what the word pilfering means. Or why are you being respectful? Paul has in mind, therefore, long-term discipleship of the masters, knowing that over time, the witness of the working of the slaves will become winsome to point the masters to a wonderful savior. This word adorn there, it means to dress up. 
or to arrange in such a way to show forth its beauty or literally to put makeup on something. And so let me ask the question, does Jesus or does the gospel need makeup? Well, the Bible says it does. So apparently it does. That's interesting. Uh, It says adorn the gospel or the savior. Uh, Let's think about it like this, okay? Uh, Because I know it's a setup question to trick you. Uh, My wife's eyes are beautiful. They they really are. Uh, But mascara draws the color out. It doesn't make the color more beautiful. It makes it more recognizable. Our good works are at, and our good actions are the mascara of the gospel. It draws attention to the beauty that is already there. So does the gospel need to become more beautiful? No, it already is beautiful. And yet the world doesn't see it. So our actions become the makeup to which draw attention to the beauty of our savior. That's what Paul is saying here. In verses five, eight, and 10, Paul is showing us that his main concern is the witness to the gospel upon the unbelieving world. How we act will disciple people around us. And Paul cares about our gospel witness. And then he writes that the gospel can come through and create this community change. And so negatively, verse five, we do not want the word of God to be maligned. Or positively, verse 10, we desire the gospel to be adorned. Paul's whole emphasis here is that we are corporately discipling people by how we act. And so let's act like we believe in the truth, beauty, and goodness of the gospel because the world will be watching and it will adorn the beauty of the gospel and they will be drawn to that gospel and they will desire to follow the same savior that we follow as well. That's what will bring holistic justice. That's what will bring genuine change is the world of God submitting to Christ. Now we'll get to how these actions aren't legalism in a second, but notice all of this, uh, the, the corporate aspect of what Paul is thinking here. He's not just thinking about individuals. He's like whole communities need to change. Notice us or they or masters or all this plural language in this text. That's why I'm saying this is a corporate discipleship thing. How we collectively act will show the world what we collectively believe and will be a witness to our collective Christ in hopes that they would find him attractive and want to follow him too. Even to those who already believe, actions become a witness conviction for us to better align with Christ. Notice some of the verbs that Paul uses here. Teach, exhort, rebuke, remind. Like we need all four of those in our corporate formation for us to be fully formed as disciples. We tend to gravitate towards like one or two of those words, right? Like some of us only want encouragement. Uh, Some of us are like Huli and we're like, rebuke me. Just rebuke me forever, right? Like, uh, okay, but we need each of these realities. Uh, Our actions, our words, they give these regardless of our position. You can do all four of those, whether you are a pastor or not. Notice what Paul does here. He tells those in lowly positions, hey, act like this because it disciples those above you. But he isn't randomly telling them to do works apart from Christ. And so this isn't legalism because that word for there in verse 11 connects the actions of verse nine and 10 to the gospel response of verse 11 through 14. Now you can't see it in English, but in the Greek, this language skyrockets at this moment. In fact, Philip Towner, who's a commentator, a theologian, he says this about that particular section. 
He says, owing to the shift in grammar and the elevated language, the reader or the hearer will know instinctively that this section is crucial to Paul's discourse. Why do we act like verse nine through 10? Well, the gospel message is what informs our actions, no matter our position, so that we can live like Jesus, who is our greater master. And as we behave like that, it reflects that we know where we are going so that we can be a witness to him who we serve. The gospel message is why we act like this. Paul increases his language because he begins to talk about Jesus. And I hope that your heart beats faster and your emotions get stronger as you talk about our beloved as well. Notice how Paul picks up the pace and the volume, why he's getting lit about this section. In verses 11, 12, and 13, we see three things about sin. We see sin's penalty in verse 11. We see sin's power in verse 12. And we see sin's presence in verse 13. Sin's penalty is death. Sin's power is that it controls you even today. And sin's presence is that apart from Jesus, it'll be with us forever. Yet all three of these aspects of sin are demolished in the perfect atoning work of Christ Jesus on the cross. Jesus's blood is a past, present, and future wellspring of life that delivers us from the bondage of sin. Bondage, slave, we are delivered from that. I need at least three amens this morning for some people who have been delivered, right? Listen, you do not have to be a slave to sin or to shame or to darkness. If you are in Christ, saints, you can be free. Listen, notice the total work of Christ. Past, we are delivered from sin's penalty. That's what verse 11 says. We are justified. We are made right with God. That is our past condition. Present, we are delivered from sin's power. That is verse 12. That's sanctification. We can now walk like and be witnesses to Christ. The future, we are delivered from sin's presence. That's called glorification. There will be no more sin and no more shame and no more tears where you are going. And Paul is telling those in lower positions, if you believe this, then you will be delivered. In fact, you can choose to submit and to serve even right now, because ultimately you're not serving the one that you're submitted to. You're serving the Lord, even as you're trying to share the gospel with the very master that you're submitted to. But if they don't convert, God will reverse it. And the slave is the one that's actually eternally free. They will be the master of the master. And so you better talk to me nicely to use a KB lyric, right? Like, listen, you who have been hurt by the church because you have been serving somebody who showed themselves to be unfaithful, you were not serving that church. You were serving Christ. And just because you got hurt by a human does not mean that your God will hurt you in the end. He will reward every good act that we have ever done in the gospel. You who have family hurt, you have been hurt by your company. You do know you're not serving them, right? You are serving a greater master and Jesus sees all deeds. And because he will deliver you from all of the sin that you have done, but also all of the sin that has been done against you, you're free. You are free and reward is coming. Verses 11 through 13, it's essentially the gospel life. You are saved, you are sanctified, and one day you will be glorified. But then verse 14, until that day comes, guess what we're supposed to do? Good works. We push back darkness in the world. It says, in fact, in verse 15, now we are eager 
to do those good works, which is convicting because while I do good, I'm not always eager to do good, but that's okay. God's grace is there. God is working. And as I allow him to sanctify me, I become a witness to the world around me. Now notice, we work to reflect the gospel, that's verse nine through 10. And then we remember the gospel, that's verse 11 through 14. But then we go to work again, that's verse 15 through three, two. Notice some of the things that Paul says are a corporate aspect of discipleship around the world around us. He says, we are to love all people, be kind to all people, trying to show them Christ, that they might see that Jesus died for all people, including them, and that they might come to know him. We are to speak evil of no one. Imagine what type of witness this would be to the world, y'all. Some of y'all be following all sorts of accounts that all they do is speak evil of other people. Are you sure you're not being corporately discipled out of Christ likeness at that moment? Now this doesn't say to not call out false truths. Just two weeks ago, Paul said to do that, call sin what it is, yet you speak with courtesy and dignity in the process. In fact, unlike the Cretans, chapter one, verse 16, who are unfit for any good work is what Paul said. We have a desire to honor God with our works because we see him as worthy. We see the price that he paid for our souls and it moves our hands to want to serve him and to make much of him. And so if you are serving out of duty, then that will quickly uh, grow dull and dry, family. But if you're serving out of delight for what God has done for you, if you remember the gospel, then you will continually be fueled and flamed by the beauty of the blood of Jesus. Here's why I say this. Notice the last point I wanna make here. Look at that word remember once again. Remember, right? This is a corporate idea of discipleship. They already knew the gospel. Paul's not telling them anything new in verse 11 through 14, but he wants to remind them of it again. That is half of the battle, y'all, of being godly and maintaining intimacy with Jesus is remembering. Remembering what you already know to be true. You just can't recall it at the moment that you need it, right? Literally last week, I was talking to a really good pastor friend of mine in Dallas, and he was sharing some truth with me that was deeply convicting. And I was like, man, this is so good. And I felt the Holy Spirit say really clear in my heart, I've already told you that, you just forgot. And I was like, dang, yo, I need to journal more. Um, but I hate journaling probably because it's like a slow down discipline and I don't like slowing down, right? But it's like, no, I need to remember what I already know to be true. Remember, as we work to remember and reflect the gospel, our works will become a public witness to the gospel and this will corporately disciple others in the process. Now, listen, it's hard to show you everything Paul is doing here without reading like a hundred page discourse on Cretan culture. But the Cretans were rough, hard, lying, cruel people. And so Paul is like, great, let's be gentle. Let's be considerate. Let's be kind. Let's be hardworking. Let's be truth-telling but humble people because this will be a witness to the world around you that doesn't look anything like that. And so what about in our culture, family? How can we be a witness to Christ in your work culture? How do your actions reflect the, the values that you believe in Christ? Are we in our work world joining people in things that are out of character with the gospel that we say we believe? When they complain and grumble, do we join in, even though the Lord would tell us directly not to do that? When they slander to gain an advantage, do we join in or do we bear witness to somebody greater? And we say, we trust him no matter what position the world gives me. I know my position in the kingdom. 
and we serve in that end. Does our work reign supreme or does God's kingdom reign supreme? Can your own soul remember the beauty of the gospel so that others can see that beauty as well? Listen, most of our evangelism in the workplace won't come from the three circles that we draw. It'll come from our character. That character then bearing witness along with our works will pave way for gospel presentations. And when we present the gospel, our works will adorn the gospel and people will want to actually follow. It is a witness to the world. So how can you use your works to be a witness to the savior of Jesus? Do you even remember the works that you're doing that they actually matter, whether people actually follow Christ or not? Can you remember Jesus, beloved? Not just on Sunday. Can you remember him on Monday as well? You see, think about Christ with me once more. Jesus could have quarreled, couldn't he? He could have come in and ruled with dominance, making slaves of everyone around him. He is God, in fact. Jesus, though, was submissive to the rulers. Jesus was obedient to the Father. He was ready for every good work. Jesus spoke evil of no one, not even of the fools. Jesus did not quarrel. Jesus was gentle to the point of the disciples cutting dude's ears off. And as he's being arrested by those same soldiers, he heals the man. Jesus was kind. Jesus adorned the gospel so much so that as he is hanging, bleeding, dying on the cross, the centurion looked up and said, truly, this is the son of God. How do you think that he came to believe in that? It was Jesus's adornment because no gospel message was fully preached on the cross, but his gospel actions were fully revealed. And that made conversion of the soldiers right there at the cross, saints. Jesus was corporally discipling all of humanity with his actions so that even to date, y'all, people who don't really uh, love Christianity still really respect Jesus. Isn't that interesting? How? It's because his actions adorned the gospel. He was our example of how our works point to the grace of God. But he is also grace himself unless we think that it is our works that get us to God. You see, notice that verse there. It says that Jesus is bringing salvation. Chris kind of low-key stole my thunder a little bit, but that was fire, dog. That was fire. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He brought salvation. You do not work for it, he brings it. Hello, right? You do not work for the gospel, Jesus brings the gospel. You are then transformed by it and become a representation of others. That's what he calls you to, saints of God. You now can make disciples in everything you do, whether you realize you're discipling people or not, because you've received the grace of God. As we seek to make more disciples, we got to recognize no matter our position in society, our actions will influence and by this automatically make disciples of those around us. So let me ask this questions as we end. How can you do that, y'all? At your work, how can you be a servant with Christ-like qualities Can you see how that might platform or adorn the gospel for you? Do you share verse 11 through 14 with others? Because our works are not enough. We need to remember the gospel in the midst of that as well. Do you even represent the well well? Like, do you see how we respond will impact our corporate message? So are you welcoming, hospitable, loving, kind, so that people can hear the gospel even preached because of how they walked into our gathering and went, this is a place of love. I desire to know where this love is coming from and they're recognizing it's coming from our savior. Are you representing the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
Paul is telling us our actions have more influence than we realize. Let us use them to actually help point people to who we believe in and follow the God that we love until Christ surely does come to wipe away every tear at the end. Let us serve him with everything. Amen. Let me read one more quote to close this. Oswald Chambers says this, because we children of Adam want to become great, he became small. Because we will not stoop, he humbled himself. Because we want to rule, he came to serve. His actions, saints, won you to his message. And so let's do the same for others. I love you guys. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you even right now as we just reflected, you became small, you became lesser, if you will. You stripped aside your divinity, stepped into our humanity. You allowed us access into the Father because you became a bondservant for us. Jesus, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you. God, what an honor to get to be the adornment of the gospel. I think about all the things that we do to try to make ourselves beautiful. That's what we get to do for the gospel. That is a sweet and an honoring gift, God. I pray that we would do that well. I pray as much time as we think about the clothing that we wear or, or the physical physique of our body or the makeup that we have on or that we would think about how we can adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ as well. Would you make us witnesses to the beauty of you, Jesus? God, I pray for everyone who came into our gathering today, maybe unsure of where they stand with you. God, I pray that that last point of the message, that the gospel came, Jesus came, appeared, bringing salvation. Friends, I want you to know, if you walked in here unsure of where you are with Christ, Jesus wants to bring salvation to you today. If you choose to believe in him, choose to follow him, choose to say, yo, I want you to be my king. This kingdom that was just talked about is a kingdom that I desire to be a part of. Jesus says, come on in, come home. As you believe you can be saved, delivered from your past mistakes, from the present oppression of sin and from sin for eternity, you can be free if you believe. And Father, I pray for each of us who have chosen to believe in you, chosen to follow you. God, I pray that we would simply remember the gospel and reflect the gospel all the days of our life. Make us a witness to the world around us. Make us disciples that make disciples, whether people are realizing what we're trying to point them to or not. I pray it be reflections of you. We praise in your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you want more information about us or how to get further connected, please visit our website, thewellaustin.com.